It must have surely all felt like a dream. I, I can picture the disciples there as they woke up each morning. Maybe they had slept in someone's house. Maybe they had slept out under the stars. But I can picture them as they woke up each morning, rolled over, rubbed the sleep from their eyes, and asked, did we really just see that? The miracles that they were experiencing right before their eyes. They had to wonder, how can we all be having this same experience? It must be real. We can't be hallucinating. It can't be a real because we're, can't, it can't be a dream because we're all seeing the same thing. But how do these things happen? And then as they were alone, they, they would have looked to each other and said, well, did, did you catch what he said at, at that one point? Do you understand what he meant there? Because I don't, I'm not sure that I get it. And they, they would have wrestled. They would have struggled with the things that he was, that he was teaching them, but They had, been, they had been wondering day after day, where does this thing end? What is the end of this? We'd have never dreamed that we would have found ourselves here, and now we're here. But where does this thing lead, and where does this thing end? What's the end of the road for this thing? Now, there was nowhere else they would have rather been. No, the going wasn't always easy. No, the reception wasn't always warm. But they were right where they wanted to be for all the rest of eternity, right there with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, they didn't even, they didn't even have a the smallest idea of what laid ahead, both for Jesus and for them. But in this moment, they were surely where they wanted to be for that day and all the days that came after. So we, we return this morning to this longest section of Jesus' teaching in Mark's gospel, this section of parables, as he just unveils for his disciples what it means for the kingdom of God to come, preparing them for the trials and the troubles that lay ahead. Because while they knew that they were where they needed to be and they knew they were where they wanted to be, they were about to be punched in the mouth less than a year later. And he needed to, he needed to prepare them. He needed to prepare us. And so go ahead and stand to your feet there in your homes as we continue reading from the fourth chapter of Mark's gospel, beginning in verse 26. And he said... The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my beautiful Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. So in neither this parable nor the, nor the parable that comes after, the parable of the mustard seed. In neither of these parables does Jesus offer any further explanation to those of us that read. Now, the Scripture does tell us that when he was alone with his disciples, he would explain to them the parables. 
he would unravel for them what it was that he had just taught in the parables. But as for the reader, as for us reading this today, and as for those who had read it in the first century, there was no further explanation that was given. This, this surely highlights for us the reality of what Jesus had said back after he had taught the parable of the soils, the parable of the sower. And as he had pulled his disciples alone, he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? If you do not understand this parable, how then will you understand all the rest? So clearly the parable of the soils was fundamental. It was foundational for all the rest that follows. And you remember there in that parable that there was a sower and he sowed seed. As he went along the way, he sowed and some fell on a hard path, almost like concrete. Other seed fell on soil where there was thorns and thistles and things that grew up and grew up and choked it out. Others fell along rocky soil where there was no ability to, to really develop any kind of deep roots. And so as a result of this, this seed would produce no fruit whatsoever. And yet there was some. There was some seed that would fall upon good soil, soil that had been prepared in advance for this very purpose, so that it would receive and it would develop deep roots and it would grow tall and strong. There would be much fruit produced. More fruit than could ever have been imagined produced 30, 60, 100 times that which was sown produced by this good soil because of the power of the seed, because of the preparation of God for that soil. And that we can walk away from that parable recognizing the power that is in God's word. And that when that word is faithfully sown, eventually there will be some good soil there. That God will have gone ahead, he will have prepared some soil, and that while much of it, most of it perhaps, is going to produce nothing at all, there's going to come some, and it's going to be every bit worth the effort, that God will be glorified and he will do magnificent things. And so the parallels between that parable and this one are pretty evident. In both instances, there's a man and he is sowing seed. In both instances, the purpose for the sowing of the seed is to produce fruit-bearing plants. In both parables, the thing that's in focus for us is the kingdom of God. Clearly, Mark intended, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, as his intention for us to understand this morning's parable, this morning's text, through the lens of the parable of the soils. And he said, verse 26, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So the kingdom of God is here compared to a man sowing seed. Next week, when we get to the parable of the mustard seed, we'll find that the kingdom of God is, is compared to the seed itself. It's a reminder that we don't get, need to get tied up in any one piece of the parable. We don't, need to then try to, we don't need to try and take the parables and turn them into allegories and dive too deep into any one person, any one place, any one thing. Jesus is speaking through the parable as a whole. The purpose of what he's trying to teach us, it can only be gathered, it can only be understood when we take the parable as a complete story. When we step back and hear this story as it's presented by Jesus, then we have some hope of understanding what it, what it is that he's drawing for them. And he says here, the kingdom of God is like. Jesus is speaking to a people that had spent centuries longing and groaning, looking forward to the kingdom of God. This is a people that had spent more time than not under the reign of pagan kings that knew nothing of God. You remember that they spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt under pharaohs there. Then 200 years under various forms of exile under the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians. And then in the 500 years that had come after that, even while living in their own homes, they spent something like 500 years then under, under Greek kings and under, under Roman, Roman Caesars. And so these people had spent something like a millennium 
under pagan kings that knew nothing of God. They knew nothing of the promises of God. Looking to heaven, wondering, when will the kingdom of God come? And then even when they were in their homes, and even when they were ruled by Jewish people, Jewish kings, the right people from the right families with the right blood coursing through their veins, they found very often that these were men that knew nothing of God. They did not love justice. They did not love mercy. They did not love the law of God. They did not rule with a right and just hand as those that should have been God's representatives here amongst his people. It was only with very rare glimpses that they would see anything that resembled the kingdom of God. They had to have wondered at times, is God's kingdom ever coming? So they waited. Not so patiently at times. They waited and they wondered. If God is truly the sovereign over all, if he is truly the king of the universe, if there is truly no end to his power and his goodness and his grace and his mercy, why do we suffer so? Why does evil seem to triumph like it does? Why do we continue to come under the oppression of the people around us? Why do so few people seem to hold on to the word, to the law, to the revelation of God? Sound familiar? And yet they hoped. They hoped, knowing the promises of God, believing the promises of God, that he was going to bless them as his people, that he was going to bless the world through them as his people. That he was going to send the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. That the kingdom of God was going to break through on earth and that there was going to be no end to the breadth or the depth of this kingdom. That it would never end. So they waited and they hoped. But man, it was getting tough. Tougher and tougher by the day. They had to have been looking at each other wondering, have we bought into a lie? And surely the whispers of the evil one in the garden had to come back to mind. Did God really say? Maybe we've just missed it. Maybe we just created in our own minds this kingdom that's never coming. Maybe we just convinced ourselves that we're God's chosen people. And either he's not there or he doesn't love us and he's not coming back. So they waited. At times they tried to manufacture this kingdom on their own. They thought maybe by force. Maybe by law. Maybe if we go ahead and play this game the way the rest of the world plays this game, maybe then we can bring this kingdom to pass. And so they waited. And then a strange man shows up, a guy named John, out in the wilderness, wearing strange clothes and eating strange food and preaching a strange message. Repent. Prepare your hearts. Make straight the path. For the king is coming, and he's here. And then all the evidence pointed to it. All the evidence assured the people that this really was the one that they had waited for. The stars in the sky, the angels in the field, the testimony of God the Father and God the Spirit, the miracles, the healings, the feedings. Everything pointed and provided evidence that this really was the Christ, that the kingdom of God was here because the king has arrived. All the evidence was there. At long last it had come. But if you had grabbed the average Jewish person, the average Jewish man or woman or child out there on the street, and you had asked them, what's it going to look like when the kingdom of God comes? What's it going to look like when the kingdom of God breaks through on earth and the king arrives? What's this going to look like? Surely they would have said it would be higher than the highest mountaintop. Explosions like lightning. Like a roaring lion that leaves his enemies laying like dead men in the street. Surely to the average Jewish person, they would have imagined that when the king arrives and the kingdom breaks through, that there will be no doubt. It will be more radiant and beautiful and powerful and obvious than anything this world has ever seen. How could it not be? 
when the creator of the universe, the God on high, the holy of holies, when he arrives, how can there be left anyone with doubt? But the reality didn't match their expectations. When the king arrived, he was born to an ordinary family. His father was a carpenter. His mother a young virgin. He was born in Nazareth of all places. He had no beauty that men would esteem him. He never picked up a sword. He talked about forgiving his enemies. He lived as a servant. This is your king? And this is your kingdom? This is what we've waited for all along. It looked nothing like what they expected to come. The people had much to learn. It was only by the illumination of the Holy Spirit that they were ever going to recognize that the kingdom of God came in the person and the work of this man named Jesus of Nazareth. It required something outside of themselves to open, open their eyes, to open their ears, to allow them to see and to understand. It's only by faith that they could grasp onto the reality that this was the kingdom of God veiled in human flesh, veiled to those that were perishing. They would look right past it. It would look like nothing to them. Because a natural person does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. They cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. It's only by the work of the Holy Spirit changing us in our nature, giving us the gift of faith that we could possibly recognize this king and his kingdom that he brings. It was going to look nothing like any kingdom they had ever seen. They just simply couldn't accept it. They couldn't receive it. This is the truth behind the parable that you were read last week. The parable of the lamp under the bed, the lamp under the basket. That the kingdom of God is broken through like light. The purpose behind a lamp, the purpose behind light is to bring clarity, is to illuminate that which would otherwise be dark. The light here, of course, is the word of the kingdom of God, just like the seed. It's the word of the kingdom of God. It's meant to bring clarity. It's bringing light, bringing illumination. As the psalmist said, it's the word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That for those that are his, it makes clear the path. It makes clear the way. It illuminates this kingdom so that we can actually see it as it is. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate light, the ultimate revelation of God. Not just the revelation, but the king himself. And he's arrived, but for most people, he didn't come the way they expected. So because he didn't come in the form that they expected, because to their eyes he was veiled, it was like he was hidden under a bed, under a basket. No one would do that. And yet to them it was veiled. It was hidden. This light, which meant to bring so much clarity to the world, to show them this is the king and this is the kingdom. This is the path and this is the way. To them it was no better than a light under a, lamp, under a basket or a light under a bed. They were going to perish never seeing this light, never understanding it. But what Jesus says is that that light won't be hidden forever. That nothing is hidden except which will later, later be manifest. That it was hidden today, but it will be made clear to everybody in the end. In the end, it will be clear to everybody that Jesus, in fact, is king. That Jesus is Lord. That in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Yes, that light is veiled for a moment. Yes, it is hidden for a time to those that are perishing. But in the end, they will see and they will know. They will recognize. But it will be too late. For those that are rejected, it will be too late. While their knee bows and their tongue confesses, there will be no more mercy left for them, no more grace left for them, no forgiveness left for them. They will completely miss the king. They will completely have missed the kingdom. They will completely have missed the light and the word and the seed and all of it will have been of no use to them whatsoever because they didn't see him when he was here. 
And that's why Jesus warns him at the end of that parable. Be careful how you hear. Take care how you hear. He was reminding us that when we come to the parable of the sower, we always, we always assume that we're the sower in this story, forgetting that we're also the soil. We also have a responsibility to hear rightly, to take care how we hear. Because the way that we hear and receive this word is going to have very real consequences, not just today, but in all eternity. Dire consequences tied to the way with which we hear this word. Receive the seed. See this light. Be careful how you hear. The way you hear, it's everything. So while you may think that you're just sitting here this morning and you're hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ for the fifth or the hundredth time, perhaps you've already called on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So as the preacher man stands and he preaches to you the word of God, you go into autopilot. You just cruise. Jesus would warn you this morning, take care how you hear. Active, intent, obedient listening is demanded. It's demanded. There's many people that hear this word and they think, well, I'll deal with it tomorrow. I'll figure out who this Jesus is tomorrow. I'll actually take some steps tomorrow. I'll get my life right tomorrow. Dear friends, tomorrow may not come. And no, I'm not just talking about you may die in your sleep. You might, but maybe not. But what God warns in his word and what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, but you may not hear tomorrow. Because even that which you have today, or you think you have today, may be taken away. God may decide that your time for hearing is done. Be careful how you hear. Because even that which has very little, what you have will be taken away. That was his warning to the people there. That we should come into this place and pray for a receptive heart. That every time we open God's word in our quiet place, we should pray for a receptive heart. We say, God, soften my heart. Prepare me. Take great hear. Take great care how you hear. We're not playing games. This is compared to a double-edged sword. How do you pick up a double-edged sword? Casually? Cavalierly? As if it's nothing? A teddy bear? No. He's saying, take great care. Because the way that you hear, the way that you receive this word, it could affect all eternity. And his warning is, take care how you hear. Don't just be hearers, be doers. That you come to God's word with a heart of softened soil, knowing you can't do that yourself. You cry out to him, prepare my heart. Give me a heart of obedience. That will receive this word and then walk away and do whatever it is. Because those who reject this today, there may be no tomorrow. Those who handle this cavalierly today, he says, even what you have may be taken away. I will no longer put the glorious light of my gospel the word of my kingdom before those of you that would trample it, that would disregard it. No longer pearls before swines, that which is holy before dogs. I will not continue to put my light before those that will not receive it rightly. Take care how you hear. That's the parable of the lamp under the basket. He's saying, but to those that receive it rightly, to those with hearts of softened soil, prepared soil, those that grasp and love and obey and honor this lamp that's been brought in. By the way, the, the, the word, the verb that's used for this lamp coming in, it's the lamp walking itself, coming itself. The lamp, of course, Jesus Christ. Those that grasp onto this and receive it, take great care with how they hear it, they'll be given even more. That's the economy of the kingdom of God. 
more to those that have. But to those that reject, those that make light, those that think they'll wait until tomorrow, even what you have will be taken away. They're saying, take care how you hear. Because the kingdom of God was nothing like they expected. He had to warn them beforehand. You need to understand, this is not going to be what you hoped for. It's greater. But you can miss it. Because it didn't come in the form that you expected. It doesn't come looking the way that you anticipated. That was the warning from last week. This thing that looks like an insignificant seed, like a lamp under a basket, a lamp under a bed. It's everything. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and he rises night and day. So in the parable of the the sower, it says that there was a sower and he sowed seed. The word there was spiro in Greek. But then this morning it talks about him just scattering it, bayo, just throwing it out there, just throwing it on the ground. Remember the man that sowed the seed, he went to the very edges of his his field, every last corner, because he didn't know where that good soil was going to be found. He knew there was going to be only a fraction, perhaps, only a portion of that soil, which was good. And so he went to the ends of, the ends of his field, to the very corners, to the very edges of his field, sowing the seed. But this guy seems to be even less precise than that. He's just scattering it on the ground. I'm imagining a man. He's got his patch there, or his satchel, filled with the seed. And he walks out, and he just, just scatters it, just throws it out on the ground. He's not working the field. He's not tilling the field. He's not sowing. He's not doing He's just throwing it out there on the ground. No evidence that he comes back and does anything more. He goes back home and he goes to sleep. Now, Jesus was preaching to an agricultural people. They would have known you've got to do work here. If you want to produce anything good, it requires work. That's the American way, right? Anything of value, you've got to work for it. You've got to put in some sweat. You've got to put, the, put in some effort. So these guys would have heard this parable and they would have thought, well, this isn't going to end well. Just like the parable of the soils. There's very little hope based on the beginning of this parable, that anything good is going to come as a result of this. No value is going to, going to come out of this. And so it says there, though, that the man scatters, and then he just goes back home, and he goes to sleep, and then he rises again, and then he goes to sleep again. Now let me share with you one of the most, maybe the most, fundamental rule for understanding and interpreting parables. Take note. Pay special attention to anything which is given an exaggerated focus within the story. Anything within a parable, anything within the story which is given an exceptional or unnecessary emphasis, that's where your eyes need to be drawn. With the parable of the soils, it was the dirt. Nobody tells a story and then spends 80% of their time talking about the dirt. You would have talked about the conditions, you would have talked about the environment, you would have talked about your sewing techniques, you would have talked about the moisture, the amount of rain, you would have talked about something, but not all of your story focused on just dirt. So that even before Jesus gave any explanation behind the parable, people would have walked away going, dang, that guy cares a lot about dirt. Evidence that your eyes should have been drawn there. Then this morning, it's on the fact that the guy goes to bed and then wakes up and then goes to bed again. Like, wouldn't that be assumed? If I'm telling you a story and that story spans a couple of days, wouldn't it be assumed that at nighttime the person goes to sleep and in the morning the guy wakes up again? So clearly the fact that Jesus includes a big portion of what he's talking about here, a big portion of his parable on the fact that the guy does normal things that everybody does, clearly he's intending for our eyes to go there. The fact that the man goes out and he scatters the seed and then he goes back home. Takes a nap, goes to sleep. He doesn't worry about the thorny soil. He doesn't worry about the, deep, uh, uh, the rocky soil. He didn't worry about the birds of the air. He just goes to sleep and assumes something's going to happen. 
Not going out there and trying to manufacture anything on his own. Not trying to help the process alone at all. Verse 27, he sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. So that while the man is sleeping and reading a book and walking the dog and hanging out with his family, the seed sprouts and it grows and he knows not how. He doesn't need to know how. His job was to scatter the seed. So that when his kids would have come to him and said, Daddy, how does that happen? How from that tiny little seed does this giant plant grow? Was all that stuff packed in there? Is this magic? How does this happen? And his response was, oh, it just does. He doesn't need to know how this thing plays out. Now, this isn't the purpose behind the parable, but I do think it's worth pausing for a moment and reminding you that we do know how seeds produce. We talked about that two weeks ago. We talked about the germination, how the embryo and, 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 and all that's within there and, and how there's the germination and the respiration and, and it takes the oxygen and it takes the water and it expands and it grows and then photosynthesis takes off and it grows. We know. Scientists are able to tell us step by step how a seed turns into a plant. We know how the thing grows. But dear friends, this does not take away from the reality that this is all the work of God. Just because he's revealed to us just because he's chosen in his sovereign grace, he's chosen to allow us the revelation of how a seed grows. He's even allowed scientists to take, take part in monkeying around with, mimicking some of the work that God does in the growing of a seed into a plant. It doesn't reduce the fact that God's the one that does it all. Who put everything in that seed, the embryo and the nutrients that it needs? Who wrote into the DNA of that seed that that's what, the way it's meant to work? That once the plant grows, it's to create more seeds. And those seeds are to... Act just in the way that the ones before. Who sent the moisture into the air? The, the oxygen. Who prepared the dirt? This is all the work of God. This truth has, has struck me between the eyes at numerous times throughout these last few years because what I've come to realize is that I can have this very divided view of reality. That I can sometimes come to this point of thinking that only the things which have this supernatural, super spiritual, unexplainable nature. Only those things are the true work of God, that all the rest are just chalked up to human will or the natural law. What God's saying in his words is it's all from him. You remember that Paul talking to the men in Athens, he says, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. That everything is attributed to God. is our creator and sustainer. God brings about his plans. He brings about his purpose. Never once having to break the law of the free will of man. Never once having to break his natural laws. God doesn't have to work outside of the things that he's put into nature in order to carry out his purpose. So that we can look at the science of photosynthesis. We can look at the building of great cities and we can truly say, this is the work of God. He doesn't have to overthrow the free will of man. He didn't have to act in ways that are somehow unexplainable. That God is at work in all things. He gets the glory and the honor that nothing happens apart from his good hand. Everything is attributed to him. But this guy just throws a seed out there, and he doesn't know how. He doesn't need to know how. He just plants a seed, throws a seed out there, scatters it, goes back home, goes to sleep, wakes up, goes to sleep again, and it does the thing that it's called to do. It sprouts and it grows. Verse 28, the earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. The earth produces by itself. The word there is automatos. It's where we get the word automatic from. 
You know what automatic means, right? It means to work by itself without any human intervention. Things that just do the things that they're made to do. Do the things that they're created to do. God had created this seed to do this. This seed in this dirt. In these conditions. Before the beginning of time, he had ordained that this was going to happen. And automatically it does. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But that blade, that man knew, this is the beginning. I see life. I see evidence. And then in God's proper timing, in accordance with God's will, it carried out to its appointed purpose. He sees that first little sprout and he knows, I know what comes next. I've seen this before. As it sprouts and it grows and then the grain in the fruit. This is the process that God had ordained every time in its proper, or, in its proper uh, order. Verse 29, but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. This is the whole point of scattering the seed. It's the reason for the farming. Look, nobody goes into the business of planting seed just to look at rows of corn. Rows of corn are awesome. They're pretty. I'd love to have a corn maze someday, but that's not the purpose. The purpose was to produce and enjoy the fruit. The, the fruit is what's the value there. It's the purpose behind scattering the seed. And so some people, they take this when he talks about the harvest, and they assume that what Jesus is talking about here is the end times, the day of the Lord, that, that there's eschatological terms here, that eschatological terms here that, that point forward to the final judgment, to the last day of the last days. And certainly there are plenty of times throughout Scripture where God uses the harvest to be a picture for the end times, for the final judgment, for the separating of those that are his from those that are not. All throughout the prophets we read about this, particularly the prophet Joel. I think about in the third chapter of prophet, the prophet of Joel, he talks about this, the harvest that will come at the end. Jesus himself seems to be alluding to that when he talks about the fact that in the end that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so certainly there is some truth to that, that oftentimes God talks about the harvest with regards to the end times, but that doesn't seem to be what Jesus is focusing on here. He seems to be talking about the goodness of the fruit, not necessarily what's going to happen to those that don't bear, what's going to happen to those that don't produce fruit. Rather than a warning, he seems to be pointing forward to the promise of the fruit that is going to come, the grain, the produce. And, and certainly, to some degree, he has to be pointing forward to the fruit of the Spirit, that which can only be produced by those that are his. Those would have been filled with his spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those things which, which are going to come out. You'll know, a, you'll know a plant by the fruit that they produce. You'll know one that is filled with the spirit of God. You'll know one that belongs to Jesus Christ based on the fruit that comes from them. Because they are connected to him. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him shall bear much fruit. Comes from our, from our connection to Him. No vine can produce anything on its own. No branch, excuse me, can produce anything on its own unless it's connected to the vine, unless it's connected to Him. But ultimately, the ultimate purpose, the ultimate fruit, of course, is the production of more fruit, of more people, of more believers. That's the ultimate purpose behind when, why Jesus has left us here. Why He didn't carry His 12 apostles home with Him? 11 plus Judas, I guess. Leave Him here. There's a reason why He's left us here to suffer. The way that he has. So that there would be others that would be produced like him. So that we too would be sowers of seed. Producing other believers that would produce more fruit. That's the ultimate purpose behind this. The reason behind which we're saved. And so we see this as Jesus speaks of the same kind of analogy of sowing and reaping. You'll remember there at the, uh, he, he was with the Samaritan woman by the well. 
And you remember that, you remember that dialogue there as his apostles, as his, his disciples, they went off from him to find some food, and they come back, and he, he explains to them that his food is to do the will of his father, and he's had that, that beautiful interaction there with that sinful woman. No doubt she was a sinful woman, that Samaritan woman. And yet when they come back, he ex, his disciples come back, he explains to them, my food is to do the will of my father, and that's what I've been doing. And then he uses an analogy, very similar, with regards to reaping and sowing, John 4, 35 through 38. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps receives wages, gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So he's talking about Two different things here, the sowing and the reaping. In his instance, he did both in one sitting as he sat with that woman, that Samaritan woman, that sinful woman. He planted the seeds of the gospel, the seeds of the word of the kingdom of God, and he reaped in that same moment as she came and gave her life. But more often than not, this plays out in a much more protracted interaction. As some, some plant the seeds, some preach the gospel, some sow the seeds, some are out there looking for that good soil. Then very often someone comes behind them and then they reap, they harvest, they gather as they're used by God to call that person to, to himself. This is the picture here of the reaping and the sowing. That's the normal pattern. And when we go through those dry stretches where it feels like all we're doing is just sowing, sowing seed, looking for some good soil. And there's others that come behind and they've done none of that planting at all and yet they get to come behind and they get to enjoy this, the harvest. They get to watch as God does the thing that only he can do. We're reminded that he does that work today, not just with his disciples then. Was it just the work of his lifetime that he does it today? With his disciples today, that many of us are used in the reaping. Some of us are used in the sowing. Some of us are used in both. And we don't know when we wake up the next day what this is going to look like. We don't know who we're, who we're going to encounter. We don't know what kind of soils we're going to find. We don't know what the harvest is going to look like. We just know that we can trust him with the work. It's all his work. Paul talks about this. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. He's making clear to us that while we may be used in the reaping, we may be used in the sowing, it's all the work of God. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? See, people were arguing over who was best, right? They were arguing over who was the better minister of God. Who was the more faithful man of God? Who was it that who baptized you? Who led you to Christ? Who taught you his word? He's saying, who? What? What's Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. You see, while we can explain through scientific terms how the seed grows and it absorbs the moisture and then the shell cracks and then the embryo takes the nutrients and then the oxygen and then it sprouts and it de develops some roots and then eventually the photosynthesis takes over. And it, While we can explain all that from a scientific term, we can't explain why. We can't truly explain how. We can observe that which God has done, which he has written into the DNA of this creation of his. We, don't, we can't predict. We can't manufacture. We can't guarantee how this seed is going to take root, where it's going to take root, 
when it's going to produce fruit. It's all the work of God. So we just get up and do whatever it is that he's put in front of us to do this morning. I go out this morning with the seed of God in my hand. I say, I'm just going to plant it. I'm just going to sow it. I'm just going to scatter it. I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm going to trust him with what comes next. I'm going to trust him with the growth. I'm going to trust him with the harvest. And then Sundays I'm going to come along and I go, look at this harvest. Look at all this fruit. Somebody must have been sowing here. I get to enjoy that part of the process as I lead others to Christ. As I water some of the things that somebody else has planted. As I come along to somebody else and I disciple them and I train them and I teach them and I rebuke them and I exhort them. But it's all God's work. He's just causing things to do the things that he set in motion. Automatically, you might say. From the very beginning of time. There's no room for boasting. There's no room for getting puffed up. This is the parable of the seed growing. That the seed can appear as nothing. And the techniques can appear as trash. And it can look like nothing is happening. And we can look at the man that's scattering and we say, what's he doing? He's sleeping. Shouldn't you be worried about the birds? Shouldn't you be worried about the thorns? Shouldn't you be worried about the rocky soil? And yet we can trust God to do the thing that only God can do. To cause the growth. There's no amount of human effort. There's no amount of human, human logic. That this thing doesn't happen in accordance with our will. This thing doesn't happen in accordance with our effort, our sweat. This thing will make no sense to natural man. That's the worst kind of sowing I've ever seen. You're never going to grow anything like that. That's the parable of the seed growing. We trust God with the growth. He doesn't need our help. But just as with the parable of the sower, he was preparing his people for this great commission that would come upon them as they went out seeking to make disciples of all nations, baptizing, training them to observe all things that Christ had commanded them. That there was going to become, they were going to come upon times that were incredibly disheartening. There were going to be times when they began to wonder, is there something wrong with the seed? Is there something wrong with me as a sower? And perhaps they were going to look around them at other people, and they were going to think, why do they seem to have real success over there? They were going to doubt. They were going to wonder if they needed to add something to the seed. Perhaps they needed to develop new techniques with the seed, and yet if we would just trust him, we would just trust him that the only good fruit that's ever going to come, the ever fruit, only fruit that's ever going to last, the only fruit that's going to produce more plants, more fruit, bring others to him, it's going to be by the working of his word. He's saying, trust me with the harvest. You sow, you plant, and then you pray. And you rest. Go get some sleep. Trust me that I'm the only one that can produce anything. No amount of anxiety, no amount of worry, no amount of staying up at night is going to change that. So you trust me that my word is enough. No amount of your effort is going to bring anything up, and the enemy is not going to snatch away anything that I have destined to bear fruit. So you sow. To the ends of the earth, you sow. I pray this is an encouragement to you. I know there's, I know as a pastor, there's times when you, you take the seed, 
You take God's word. And, and you stand up week in and week out. And, and you're just scattering. I know for many of you, you leave this place and you go out into the world, wherever God leads you. And, you, and you just, you're just scattering the seed. And for many of us, it's been a while since we've enjoyed much of the harvest. And you start to doubt. And you start to wonder. And then there's people that come to you at times with problems. Worldly problems. New age problems. Complicated problems. And you wonder, can this simple seed really be enough? Jesus didn't know anything about the internet. Jesus didn't know anything about coronavirus. Jesus didn't know anything about the protests that are going on in our streets today. Can this word really be enough? You've got to ask yourself that. Every man and woman must ask themselves. Everyone that calls themselves a believer in Jesus Christ, do you really believe that this word is enough? That like the seed, it has everything that it needs to produce. You believe everything that you need for training and righteousness, for teaching, for reproof, for correction. Do you believe everything that you need to be equipped for every good work that God has called you to, for every trouble that this life is going to bring you, for every trial, for every struggle, for every sorrow, for every tear, for every broken heart that you're going to experience in this lifetime, do you believe that this word is enough? And are you going to live like this word is enough? Are you going to be constantly, constantly be looking out of the corner of your eye for something else? Bringing in little dashes of what the world has to offer. Do you believe that this word is enough? And in the power of the Holy Spirit, when this word strikes the heart of one that he has cast his eye upon, that is going to produce fruit. Bountiful fruit. That is going to carry them through this lifetime, straight off into an eternity with him. Do you believe that's enough? The only way that you will know that you believe it's enough is when you just keep sowing. When every problem that comes your way, every trial that comes your way, every struggle that comes your way, you just keep going back to that same seed. That's the way you know. It's easy to claim in this room, in this moment, that this word is enough. Get punched in the mouth. In the words of the great philosopher Mike Tyson, everybody's got a game plan until they get punched in the mouth. Then when you get punched in the mouth, do you keep coming back to this seed, to this word, to this light? Do you believe that it's enough? We live in very unique times, with very unique struggles, but dear friends, God is not caught off guard. He knew before the very beginning of time that we would sit in this place at this moment for this time, and he gave us this word for this purpose. Do you believe it's enough? Are you being careful how you hear? Are you clinging to this word like it's your very lifeline? When you roll over in the morning, it's the first thought of your mind, may I get more? May I have more? May I return to the only source for life and living? The only source that will show me the way, the path forward. Or do you wander about sampling from this and that and the other? I don't know when we come back together in this place. For those of you that are home, this is a weird morning. This is the first morning where there has been literally, there is, I'm looking in, at a literal empty room right now with the exception of one man behind the soundboard and Haley. That's it. 
even throughout this process, we've had a praise team here. We've had a few more people here, people that were necessary, essential to doing this. And yet as we've continued to pull back, and I sit here and I look at empty pews. I look at red ribbons marking off pews, but it doesn't matter whether they're marked off because there's nobody here to sit in them. As I talk to you people through a camera, my deepest fear, I don't know that I want to call it a fear, my deepest concern is it because we are not gathered in this place, because I'm not able to sow the seed directly into your face, on top of your head, to see you, to beat you with this thing, my fear is that you're going to wander away and you're going to go looking after the wisdom of this world, that you're going to look for your answers somewhere else. As your shepherd, that is my fear. So my prayer for you this morning is you would cling to this word knowing that it is enough. I promise you, on the authority of the living God, I promise you, this word is enough. You don't need anything else. For those that have been called from darkness to light, from death to life, by the power of the Holy Spirit, those that have been given eyes to see and ears to hear, this word is enough. And I want to be a people that lives it. A lot of people have been preaching it. Now's the time to determine whether or not we believe it. Right now that we're getting punched in the face. Right now when the world is screaming at us and we are fools. Now's the time to determine whether this is really enough for us. Whether we really believe it. Whether we're really going to cling to it. I believe that God is doing a sifting work right now. I believe that, I believe that there is there's a shaping that is happening. This isn't even real persecution. Last time I checked, I didn't walk down the streets of Crosby, Texas and find people strapped to lanterns and lit on fire. Christians aren't being fed to lions. This isn't first century Rome. And yet in the middle of this struggle, I believe that God is doing a work. He's pushing us up against this, what it is that we say we believe. So the question is, will we believe it? Will we cling to it? Will we hold fast to it? Will we believe that it's enough? Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that your word is sufficient. Not just sufficient to show us your son, Jesus Christ. Not just sufficient to call us to life. But Father God, it is sufficient for everything that comes after. Everything from that moment, that first spark of spiritual life off into eternity, that your word is enough doesn't need our help, doesn't need human effort, it doesn't need the cunning of man. We thank you that you have called us to be sowers of that seed, that you've not only planted that seed in our hearts, Father, but you've called us to produce more, to be bearers of fruit, sowers of seed. And Father, we confess that we are very weak at times, Father. We have doubts. We have struggles. We have questions because we don't know how. We don't know how it grows. We just know that it does. So, Father, my prayer this morning for this people is that we would put our money where our mouths are. We would put our lives on the line trusting that your word is enough. That we would feast on it night and day, day and night hiding it in our heart, allowing it to light our path. Truly living as the people of the book. 
Father, I pray that you would strengthen us in that way. Father, if there's any here that have not yet responded, they've not yet given themselves fully and completely to you, not yet trusted in your son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior. Father, I pray that you would stir in their hearts now, calling them to the end of themselves to recognize that they are sinful, broken, and eternally separated from you. But that in your grace and your mercy, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life, to take their sin upon himself, to die on a cross and there make an exchange his perfect righteousness for their broken sin that they could be found not just neutral that you're not just ambivalent that you that you look upon them and you see your son Jesus Christ the blessings that only he deserves you pour out into their lives father we pray that you would bring them to that point if there's any among us that is deceived father and I'm not arrogant enough to believe that I am not deceived. If there's any among us that is deceived, Father, I pray that you would show us that. Any of us that have just been playing church, just been going along to get along, Father, I pray that you would shake us out of that. Father, above all, I pray that you would be glorified by the songs that we sing, the prayers that we offer, the words that we speak, and the lives that we live be glorified now. To your son's precious name we pray. Amen.